Do you want to see more of what goes on behind the scenes at Pitchfork Economics? Hey, it's Annie, and I have some great news for you. We started an Instagram account. The handle is at Pitchfork Economics, just like the title of this podcast. And you can peek behind the scenes of our recording sessions in our office, our guest interviews, things we're reading, all the good stuff. We're having a ton of fun putting it together, and we would really appreciate it if you gave us a follow, a like, a comment, tell all your friends, do all the things you do on Instagram when you love a page. We really appreciate your support. We have places of enormous prosperity and enormous productivity growth and places that have been, you know, so to speak, left behind. In the last couple decades, rural has become a synonym for poor. I grew up helping raise the wheat and cattle and pigs that went on to be on the plates of families more well off than mine. Of the nation's 53 largest metro areas, uh, that represents just 2% of all the places in America. But those places saw 75 to 80% of all the employment growth in the country since 2008. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, we talk a lot about inequality in our office, uh, how it's been rising over the past 40 years. And usually when uh, people hear about economic inequality, they think about it as uh, inequality between people, between, say, you at the very top and me in the middle and, uh, I don't know, some guy who works for Howard Schultz at (laughs) at the bottom. But in fact... There's another kind of inequality that's been growing in America, which which goes by the kind of wonky name spatial inequality or geographic inequality, rising inequality between geographic regions, between poor states and rich states, between rural areas and urban areas. In fact, in the last couple decades, rural has become a synonym for poor. Yeah. Explain what's going on here. Yeah. So one of the really corrosive things that's happened to the economy over time is that for a a variety of both bad and good reasons, almost all of the wealth is concentrating into cities. Like Seattle. Uh, Seattle is a great example of that. And that is making rural places, places that are not cities, poorer and poorer. And there are all these really terrible feedback effects among them that as the folks in those places get poorer, uh, that depresses real estate values, which of course makes people poorer, but it also limits not only their economic mobility, but their physical mobility. Because if you own a home in a, in a rural area that's worth $40,000, uh, you, you can't even put a down payment down on a one bedroom apartment in Seattle today for that practically, right? Like it's so expensive to move. So, so you're not just saying that cities like Seattle and San Francisco and New York are booming while much of the rest of the country is being left behind. You're saying that 
the economic forces that are driving the economic boom in places like Seattle, they're actually impoverishing swaths of rural and uh, and exurban America. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and some of it was what my brother who runs the Seattle Sounders would call an own goal. <laughs> that is to say, we shot ourselves in the foot with policy. And a, a great example of that was allowing unlimited amounts of corporate concentration. Because in the day, uh, there were tons of important regional companies that propped up the economic vitality of non-urban places, right? Every region in the country used to have a local retail chain, you know, that there were dozens of them, probably at some point in the past, hundreds of them, and all of them got consolidated out. They all got smashed by Walmart and now Amazon right. or whatever it is. But there were regional manufacturing companies, there were family farms, there were all these things. And in the pursuit of the neoliberal version of efficiency, we allowed all of that corporate concentration to take place without recognizing that it would essentially eviscerate all of these smaller places. So that was... There was a policy choice that we made that was an own goal. And, 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 and the other side of it is just economics and an information economy. There are certain things about information equality that function differently yeah. than an industrial economy. Correct. Uh, where, which leads to this, what they call the agglomeration effect in these superstar cities. Yes. Where these companies, employers need to be around where all the high tech, highly educated uh, workers are. And yeah. these highly educated workers need to be around where all the high tech jobs are. Yeah. And that sucks all of the wealth into these cities. Right. And leaves everybody else and leaves behind. leaves everybody else behind. You know, Nick, when we respond to people uh, criticizing the $15 minimum wage in Seattle, calling it a job killer, we like to point out Seattle and the metro area is number one in job growth. It's number one in wage growth. We're one of the fastest growing cities in the nation. And uh, that's great. But it turns out it's not just Seattle Correct. where that's happening. All of the growth is happening in a handful of cities. Right. Of the nation's 53 largest metro areas, that's people with more than a million people. Uh, that represents just 2% of all the places in America. But those 53 places saw 75 to 80% of all the employment growth in the country since 2008, uh, which uh, tells right. you a lot about the dynamics of the economy. And in fact, most of the counties in the country still have not recovered from the Great Recession. Right. Whereas we're going gangbusters. So that that gives you that flavor of where, you know, Economy looks great here. The numbers are great in the aggregate, but in much of America, people aren't seeing it. Yeah. So, and you know, another kind of astonishing fact about, you know, this increasing spatial inequality is that prosperous zip codes added more businesses since 2008 than the bottom 80% of zip codes combined. Right. And it just shows you where all of the economic growth is and, and where it's not. Right, and I think I, I saw some statistic a couple of years ago that said if you if you took the West Coast uh, 
and uh, separated it out from the rest of the country, th- there would have been no GDP, aggregate <laughs> GDP growth over the last 10 years. And that's mostly happening in Los Angeles, right. San Francisco, Bay Area, Portland, and Seattle. Yeah, and the population growth statistics uh, you know, reflect that. The U.S. has grown by um, approximately 75 million people since 1990. But virtually all of that growth has taken place in cities and suburbs. And, you know, not surprisingly, since the 1990s, problems like crime and opioid use, you know, things associated with poverty that used to be mostly problems of urban areas are increasingly a rural phenomena. Right. So you and I, Nick, living here in Seattle, we have a lot of experience with the upside to the current economic system, all the prosperity that's happening in these cities. Uh, To learn a little more about what's happening in most of the rest of America, at least geographically, I talked with Eduardo Porter of the New York Times. One of our favorite writers. Right, about growing uh, spatial inequality and its impact on rural America. Eduardo? Speaking. Hi, this is David Goldstein at Civic Ventures. Hi, how are you doing? Okay, thanks for uh, joining us today. Can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Great. So tell me about the book you're writing. Um, I have a book coming up called American Poison about how race has distorted the American social contract and essentially uh, defeated the American dream. Wow. I look forward to that book. So could you give us a little background on spatial inequality, what it is, and and how life in rural America has changed over the past couple decades? Well, spatial inequality is, I think, something that has fairly recently come to the attention of economists and other social scientists. I mean, indeed, inequality itself was often ignored in economic research, and I would say that only maybe within the last 10 years, um, and even more recently, has it become kind of like a focus of economic policymaking and economic papers and research projects. And the geographic component of it is, to my mind, one of the newest, that the distribution of prosperity across the country is, of course, not homogeneous. We have places of enormous prosperity and enormous productivity growth, and places that have been, you know, so to speak, left behind. And To put it sort of schematically, the parts of the country that have done well are the parts that have been able to hitch on to the new IT-based industries, and the places that have not done well are the places that have not been able to attach themselves to this. And so this has created a big divide that is only getting starker and starker because the regions that are plugged into the IT revolution, as it were, artificial intelligence and so on, are actually just a few very large, very successful cities. And most of the rest of the country is struggling to think of a strategy about how they can play in this game. And it's not clear what that strategy would be. Rural America in particular, which is the home of, I don't know, 50, 60 million people, is particularly in a bad spot in this dynamic 
because there is really very little reason for any of this IT heavy economy to go to rural America. The IT economy really, really depends on high skilled, highly educated workers. And it finds those in big cities, not in small towns or in rural areas. In fact, if there are, you know, highly educated people coming from smaller towns, they tend to gravitate to big cities too. So big cities are the place where this IT economy is really taking shape. And the smaller places, the less dense places, have been unable to, you know, find a way to attach themselves to the contemporary economy. In your piece, you talk about the, uh, I think the quote is, the inescapable reality of agglomeration. And Enrico Moretti, in his book, The New Geography of Jobs, uh, points out that this economy, the knowledge economy, is different from traditional economies and that there's this inherent tendency toward geographic agglomeration. Can you explain a bit why that is? What's so special about the knowledge economy that's different from the old industrial economy that used to benefit rural areas? Okay, so let's take a step back and start with the industrial economy. Industry, manufacturing, is different from tech in that it really required a lot of workers. And the cost of labor was an important variable for manufacturing businesses. So if the industrial economy that was still a big employer up to, say, the 1970s, did have a use for less skilled workers. And so it did have a use for a lot of the people that were living in small towns and rural areas. I mean, if you think about it, we consider rural America like the heart of agriculture, but most of the employment in rural America has been in manufacturing. I mean, you'll find that perhaps sectors that depend on the government have more employees, you know, like health and social services and whatnot that rely on Medicare and Medicaid spending. Uh, they might employ more, but say the first big private sector employer in pretty much across the board was manufacturing. But so then what happens? I mean, as more of manufacturing leaves the United States and, you know, companies outsource much of their manufacturing to places like China, well, then, you know, the big source of private employment for many of these places just went away. And the new American economy found itself relying more and more on IT-based services. And IT really does not need low-skilled workers. I mean, or if it does, it goes and gets them in China. I mean, think of Apple that manufactures, assembles most of its iPhones in China with Foxconn. So the need of the IT sector in the United States is of highly skilled workers, which means workers that at least have a bachelor's degree. And so those it can find in big cities because they either went to school in big cities or if they went to school somewhere else, they are going to end up going to big cities because that's where the jobs are. And so there's a positive feedback cycle where the businesses come to big cities because here is where they can find the highly skilled young people that they need to become their engineers and so on. And then the highly skilled people come here too because that's where the jobs are. You have tons of people and tons of different types of occupations and jobs to be had. So there is a, if you're a business, you have a much thicker, denser, more varied labor force from which to choose your workers. If you're a worker, you have a thicker, denser set of businesses 
to which you could offer your labor. So on both sides, there is much more opportunity. If you go to even a, you know, a decent sized city, but that relies on one industry, if that industry is in trouble, you're pretty much dead in the water. Right. So the knowledge economy doesn't actually hold out that much hope for rural America. For decades, we'd heard about the promise of telecommuting in the knowledge economy, but it turns out that doesn't really work. You need people, creatives in one spot physically. Well, yeah, that's that's another in, very interesting finding from Enrico Moretti's work that when you put, you know, like one engineer or one, you know, biotech person in a cluster of other engineers or biotech people, this person will be much more productive than if he or she were in a place with fewer of these um, of these equally skilled workers. So the more of them you have together, the more productive they are. You know, I guess it's because they talk to each other at the water cooler or whatnot. Somebody invents something and the neighbor in the next pod can think of some uh, variant of that that's even more interesting. But evidently, yeah, the clustering of talent is very valuable. And so that kind of like is a, a really good argument against telecommuting. So if the knowledge economy isn't going to work in small towns and rural areas, can rural America be saved? Well, with the tools that we have available now, my diagnosis would be not really. I mean, I was traveling at the end of last year through Appalachia a little bit, mm -hmm. and this is a country that used to rely on coal. And it was a part of the country that has always been very poor. It's never been like hugely prosperous, but it had an industry. Now that industry is going away and you really can't see what they're gonna put in its place. It's extremely frustrating, frankly, because you have a very good number of people there that really want to work, want a job and whatnot, but you don't know what kind of job could plug them into the broader American economy. And so what happens there is that more than half of the income of the residents in some of these counties in Appalachia that I was traveling through, half of their personal income comes from the federal government, from, you know, places like Social Security, um, food stamps, housing subsidies. So it's like welfare broadly understood accounts for more than half of the income of folks in these places because there is no real private source. You know, there is no real economy plugged into the broader American economy. So this, my short answer is, you know, I don't know what can save rural America. I am not very optimistic, but, you know, one hopes. <laughs> a basic income? Well, that's a transfer, yeah. I mean, the way that some of these communities survive now is from federal transfers. There's one county, I can't remember which one it is, maybe it's Osley County in Kentucky, where more than 60% of personal income comes from the federal government. I mean, that's an insanely high percentage. So yeah, I guess, you know, if you take that to the extreme, you're talking of a universal basic income. But I don't really know that the United States is ever going to have the uh, a government of the size that can provide a UBI of significance to all of its people. Um, and I'm not sure that that's what people in places like Appalachia really want. We're in Seattle. You're in New York. These are cities that are doing very well uh, with the knowledge economy, but our housing prices are high. 
And uh, that leads to the fact that Americans are not only less economically mobile than they ever were, uh, you point out uh, they're also less geographically mobile. What do we need to do to actually increase that geographic mobility so people can move to where the jobs are? Well, yeah, that's the $64 million question. There has been always this kind of trite recommendation. Go to where opportunity is, right? Go to the city. Go to where the jobs are. But as you point out, housing prices in these places, which are constrained by all sorts of zoning restrictions and so on, have risen a ton. And so it's impossible if you are sort of like a a worker without a college degree that's coming to the city for a fairly low wage, they're going to be very difficult for you to afford housing. Right. And so you're going to end up li- living, you know, two hours away from your job, as many people in San Francisco end up doing. And that, if you're lucky, because you could get per- pushed even further away. So that seems to be not really a solution. And in fact, there's some very, very recent research by David Otter of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who finds that even if you don't include housing costs, the pay premium for people without a college degree that cities used to offer has pretty much disappeared. So, you know, in 1970, if you didn't have a college degree, if you were in a big, dense city like New York, you could probably get a job with better pay. There were clerical jobs here to be had, you know, working as an office assistant or gathering data or some sort of clerical position that paid better than, say, working at a 7-Eleven. Well, apparently all of those jobs or the vast majority of those jobs have been automated away or outsourced away. And the, and then and the same, at the same time, the bottom end jobs, you know, the guy the working at the 7-Eleven or at McDonald's or a janitor in a big building, wages in those jobs who also used to offer a premium in big cities over smaller places, those wages have also come down. So right now there's no benefit it seems, from data from from David Otter's work, there is no real benefit to come to these big, dense cities if you don't have a college degree. So we have, you know, maybe as many as 60 million people living in rural America, and we have a uh, electoral system designed to uh, over-represent them in the Senate and also in the House and in the Electoral College. What's the danger in that? Well, you, you said it, man. Uh, um, I, you know, I, at one point, you could say, well, this problem is intractable, um, so, you know, let it, it'll shake out in some way. Maybe folks in rural America will move to the cities or something. But if you think that way, it means that you're thinking that, the Senate is going to be run by a group of really, really pissed off people who are in a part of the country who has not experienced any sort of economic progress for very, very many years. And that I don't think is conducive to very good politics, because as you point out, you know, no matter what the density of a particular state, it gets two senators. And so rural states have enormous power over our politics, even though they don't have that many people. Um, and so this idea that, this, that the whole swathe of America is falling behind and yet holding this very 
important lever over policy and politics is kind of scary. And uh, to put it more kind of like more starkly, rural America has gone Republican pretty much decidedly, just as the South went Republican after civil rights. I would say that in the last, you know, whatever, 10 years, rural America has also gone decidedly into the Republican Party's side. And and I guess that the takeaway for Democrats is if they can't think of a way to increase prosperity in these places, these places will be lost to them. And so you have to think of a very long-lasting Senate Republican majority that's held up by these rural voters. But can they? Because it's it's the Republicans who actually oppose many of the policies that would end up benefiting rural America, at least the the social safety net part of it. It's true that Republicans tend to oppose the safety net that is keeping many of these communities afloat. And that is one of the great paradoxes of the United States, because people in these places actually vote for the Republicans that then vote against the social safety net programs that these places rely on. But frankly, I think it's premature to think that the solution to the bits of America that are left behind can only be about redistribution. So the idea that let's, you know, the labor market, which is how most Americans made a living throughout, you know, most of our history has failed us. And we've got to think about some big redistribution programs of a scale that we have never experienced as a way to keep some of these people and these places afloat. I I don't think we have to go there quite yet. I think that even though I'm not very optimistic that there are obvious solutions, I do think that we have to hold on to the idea of productive work as the solution or as a first order solution, as the first place that we go, and then look for ways to make productive work pay and to make work productive. So minimum wage increases, some combat against the monopoly power of companies. Um, Some economists have suggested going to sector-wide wage setting, as in many other industrialized countries where, you know, you have a union that represents an entire sector, negotiating wages that that will apply across the country uh, for, for many, many workers. So even if you have a low union penetration, it can work as a an important floor under wages. Um, There's other ideas about, you know, um, um, trying to, working to to connect sort of like medium-sized hubs to the big hubs. So you're talking of not trying to revitalize, you know, Harlan, Kentucky, but maybe, you know, Columbus, Ohio, or something like that. And trying to make, to plug that into the network of superstar cities. They have a fairly highly educated workforce. They have, you know, broadband internet. They have, you know, decent IT infrastructure that maybe could be, and and if you get these to these second tier places and manage to connect them to the first tier places, as it were, they might create an ecosystem of their own that could serve their local areas. Right. Well, re-regulating the airline industry so that these uh, <laughs> mid-sized cities have service again might help. That could help, too. Exactly. Forcing air- airlines to serve some of these places would certainly help. 
Um, but yes, I mean, I think the idea, the high-level thought, is about plugging in the places that are left behind to the places that are successful. Like, it's, it's about building networks. Right. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take it easy. Have, Bye. A, have a good day. I'm going to just take a little bit of an issue with Eduardo saying that, you know, we probably can't save rural areas because I think we we have to find a way to save rural, rural areas. Like the, the problem with living in the United States of America, which is a country of vast geographic spaces, is that that creates a different political problem than they have, for instance, in a place like Germany, where you're never farther than 30 minutes away from some big city. But, you know, the United States is not like that. There actually are places where it is impossible to commute to the city because it's just so far away. And the underlying dynamics of an increasingly technological economy um, that are driving spatial inequality, those dynamics are not an own goal. Those are, those are things that are intrinsic to the way in which economies work. And I think it's important to remember that, first, all prosperity and increases in welfare are a consequence of innovation, but that innovation, in turn, is a consequence of combining old things in new ways, which in turn is a consequence of the number of people you have doing it and how different they are from one another and the ways that they do it. Right. So it's an evolutionary system. And the reason that cities matter so much to prosperity is that's where density and diversity is. And we now know that there's a super linear effect of that comes from increasing density that is to say it's not just that the more people there are in a city the more innovation you get it's that the more innovation you get per person right it's exponential it's exponential and that's why big cities so massively economically outperform small places in fact it goes up by a factor of 1.15 times for every doubling in size right and, and so you end up in a circumstance where a, a big city is actually not different in degree but different in kind from a small place which is just a super hard problem to crack right so eduardo porter says that rural america can't be saved the scaling effect within big cities seems to reinforce that idea uh, largely because you, you can't give rural America the density and diversity right. and increasing returns that you get in a city. But let's make a distinction here. That doesn't mean you can't share the benefits exactly. that come from that sort of exactly. prosperity. And we can find ways to recycle the prosperity that we create in cities to places that are not cities. Wow, that's an odd idea. You mean like like uh, spending money raised in cities to uh, like the Tennessee Valley Authority right. and the Bonneville Power Authority and all of that New Deal spending that irrigated and electrified and built roads through rural America to help bring prosperity to it in the 30s and 40s the, and 50s and Goldie. 60s and 70s. Right? That's yeah. what we used to do. Yeah. And you can open universities and hospitals and all sorts of other things. But there's this other incredibly simple thing you can do, which is you can require the giant corporations that are headquartered in all the cities to pay people that they employ in non-cities, in rural areas, decent wages. 
right? right? There's no earthly reason why Walmart cannot afford to pay people, even in rural Kansas, $20 an hour. And if they did, those places would not be poor because the truth is most people in these small towns today are not self-employed and they are not uh, working for small businesses. They're working for giant multinational corporations. Right. So Eduardo Porter gave us a lot of the facts and theory about what's going on in rural America. But to learn a little more about the lived experience, I'm really excited, Nick, to talk to Sarah Smarsh. Uh, She wrote the book Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. And it was a a New York Times bestseller and a National Book Award finalist. But but more importantly, it was just (laughs) one of my favorite books of the past couple of years. Well, that's enough for me. Hey there, this is Sarah. Hey Sarah, it's Nick Hanauer. Hey Nick. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. I hear you've taken a hiatus from interviews, <laughs> so we're, we're very uh, grateful. Oh, thanks. I was um, stoked to receive the invitation, been looking forward to it. And I was long ago an admirer of your viral Politico piece, so (laughs) happy to connect. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, you said um, in one of your interviews that you sort of began to understand the dynamics of inequality when you went to college, that Mm. you started figuring that out. Can you tell us a little bit of your story about how that happened, what unfolded? Sure. So I am a first generation college graduate. I was the first from actually I was the first person from my farmhouse to finish high school. I was largely raised by my grandparents on their farm. Um, My mother did get her GED, but she was um, 17 when she became pregnant with me. Brilliant woman. uh, But being a a poor female meant um, uh, limited possibilities, unfortunately, for her in that regard. Uh, my dad did finish high school, but he's been a uh, construction worker for, for decades since leaving uh, farming life. And so that moment of packing up my beater car and driving to the University of Kansas three hours away from the farm I had grown up on uh, was really kind of the the initial bridge moment of my life. And, and I understood that at the time, that I was doing something no one from my family had done. And in fact, I had set out very specifically with that goal as a, as a kid, even having that um, in mind. When you come from a background like mine, you can't necessarily dream the biggest possible dream for yourself because you don't even have the language to articulate the possibilities. So I was a, a straight-A student on the KU campus, and I literally didn't know what graduate school was. So class is more than just income. Uh, it, it, of course, is all sorts of uh, types of social and cultural capital and even just a vocabulary to navigate, say, finance or higher education. And so that was a, it was a hard road to hoe, my family would say. You, you know, I, I, was a, I was always good in the classroom, but, but the real challenge for me was brushing up against um, systems and e- even just middle class iterations of American life that, that were utterly foreign to me. So it was a very lonely time and where some students were having carefree spring breaks, it, those were the hardest years of my life in terms of just raw work and psychological wherewithal. How did you pay for college? 
Uh, I did earn quite a few scholarships uh-huh. for my just academic scholarships when I when I graduated from my tiny rural high school. There were about um, I think maybe sixty five kids in my graduating class, uh, and um, and and then I also held at at any given moment one to three jobs to pay my my living expenses and and what I had coming in didn't always cover just even basic necessities. So one of the wild ironies I've sometimes contemplated about inequality in this country is I grew up helping raise the wheat and cattle and pigs that went on to be on the plates of families more well off than mine. And when I was a college student, I myself experienced food insecurity by way of lack of funds. So I, I at times, you know, was like a 19 or 20 year old kid literally stealing food out of grocery stores. And I had, I had grown up doing the backbreaking work that, that helped grow that food. Yeah. Interesting. So, you know, we think that your life's work, this this sort of mission and journey that you're on is so important because it's a direct assault on the dominant narrative of our time, which is neoliberalism, which basically teaches people in our country that the reason you're poor is because you're lazy, you're stupid and you deserve it more or less. Right. Sure. That that your poverty, your difficulty, your challenges are a product of your individual deficiencies, mm-hmm. not the consequence of a set of cultural and um, institutional forces which have, I mean, shaped a lot of that outcome. And your story is sort of about awakening to the, the fact that that's kind of a lie. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So... You know, first of all, let me say that I never in a million years would have thought of myself as poor when I was a kid. And and there are some beautiful things about that. But more importantly, I think it's kind of a a commentary on the lies that we tell ourselves about the class structure in this country that that I was so unaware of the extent to which my own family was being screwed. Now, when I started waking up to that, whether it was on a college campus or in professional environments to beyond, it, it was, as you say, kind of a, a revelation to to understand those big systems that, that we kind of hopelessly couldn't understand when we were just being ground down at what we might right. think of as the, the bottom of the economic chain by day-to-day labor, um, lack of information sources. There are myriad reasons why the people on whose backs the wealth is created often have the least agency to affect change about it. But But one piece of that essential awakening process is, as you say, understanding that the shame that you might carry somewhere deep down, even if you even if you walk with great pride, as my family does, you know, any person who's grown up in, in poverty has experienced at least a keen awareness of the way that they're perceived by middle class or upper middle class America. And you see that, you know, being portrayed in popular culture as uh, bucktooth backwards buffoons, or uh, even in the news media, just a, a disconnect between the, the very language that they are using while interviewing policymakers to pontificate about your reality, and you don't even you don't even know the words that they're using because you haven't had a chance to learn them. When you realize that the shame's being put on you, as opposed to it being deserved or somehow just that your economic outcomes somehow relate to the hard work that you put in you know it's like it it isn't hard to see that the, the majority of people living in poverty in this country are damn hard working and creative people um the vast majority of people who are on um public benefits are are also working as much as they can and 
the people who I know would much rather be just paid a dignified wage than have to apply for some program. So, so yeah, that sort of teasing out where, where does the, the line of the individual story, which the United States historically loves to, to, to put its emphasis on, and where the, the bigger picture of policy and culture and narratives begins, that's, that's where uh, an awakening is possible. Yeah, and it, it is complicated, right? Because on the one hand, the narrative of individual effort and personal responsibility is legit and valid and valuable and something we want to treasure and encourage. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is useful for people to feel like, no, I should work hard and try and make stuff happen for myself. On the other hand, um, we are prisoners of uh, dominant cultural narratives and products of giant institutional arrangements. <laughs> and I think one of the really cool things, interesting and powerful things that you teased out was the Hobbesian choice that our political parties give people. On the one hand, the Republicans are all like, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, oh, it's those immigrants that are taking your jobs. And on the other hand, the best Democrats have been able to offer is we're America's vending machine. And yeah. uh, you, you deserve our pity and we will help you. <laughs> and mm -hmm. neither of those narratives are very are very appealing to sensible people who come from that place. Right. Yeah. Well said. Um, you know, I was raised in what I would call a, a moderately conservative environment, which also had some. Uh, socially liberal views mixed in. There are aspects, while I now identify as a, just an absolute across-the-board unapologetic progressive, um, there, there are aspects of what we might think of as like old-school conservatism that, that I still carry with me and, and treasure and think are valuable and, and would be wrong to dismiss. And one of those is, um, you know, a, a sense of liberty that is for in particular someone growing up in a, a rural area well earned to have a sense of healthy suspicion about a system so large as a federal government or or programs that would would have you uh, pee in a cup to qualify to, to be a deserving recipient of welfare benefits so you know what while I am for uh, robust, programs for the social good, I think that sometimes liberals who have never, who are well-meaning, don't, don't realize, you know, they've never walked in the shoes of someone that would have to go ask for the help. And in the richest country on the planet, why can't we have a, a, a system where you don't have to ask? You know, again, neither, I'm, I'm not, I'm not super crazy, stupid, wealthy like Nick, but I've mm -hmm. never been poor. Uh, but most importantly, I think uh, neither Nick or I have ever spent much time in rural America. And I mm -hmm. think there, there are obviously a lot of ways in which urban poverty and rural poverty are very similar. But I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how they're different. Sure. So I, I think a lot about place and where we kind of plant ourselves. And I, I think that there are a couple main differences between rural and urban poverty. One is Rural folks tend to, they've, this is a rather general statement, it's not true across the board, but mostly there are people whose, whose families have been there a long time. Now, by long time, I'm, you know, speaking to a, a version of rural America that arose after, um, you know, our federal government's essentially sanctioned genocide of indigenous peoples, um, but I, I am a fifth generation Kansas farmer descended from poor European immigrants. And I guess what I'm saying is that the families that you will find 
at least historically speaking over the last century who are in rural America have been there for a long time and thus their um, lack of proximity to various kinds of resources that have increasingly been urbanized is one of the unique challenges that they face. And then the story about them is, well, why don't they just leave, which is an incredibly condescending uh, question that is a, probably a topic for a whole other podcast. Now, I will note that increasingly rural America is being filled by immigrant families. That's certainly true here in Kansas. In western Kansas, we have a robust um, industrialized agriculture uh, workforce in the meatpacking meat plants, and that tends to be um, uh, brown folk who have only been in that area for a generation or two. Um, now, in in urban environments, there's a much poverty is much more transient. Um, Matthew Desmond wrote of the sociologist wrote an amazing book called Evicted mm -hmm. about yeah. something that I see in on my mom's side of the family who are um, a couple generations off the farm. They uh, moved around just by out of necessity when they couldn't make the uh, rent payment or they were fleeing an abusive husband or. Um, there, there's something about urban poverty where you're a little less tethered and that comes with its own problems. Now, I talked about proximity to resources and how these things relate. You can be transient in a city and that detaches you from community in some damaging ways, but at least there, there is greater opportunity to get some help from the local YMCA or various, or a food bank or a shelter. Those sorts of resources do exist uh, in rural America, but are are much are stretched much thinner. We like to think of ourselves as kind of post place in this digital uh, era that we're living in, in particular folks of a certain class, where you can just feel this sense of like I work remotely and I hop on a plane from point A to point B, and and um, and, and place feels less like a, a reality. But for people who are rooted in rural America that the the literal location where they reside is the the difference between being able to access a hospital or not when you cut your foot on the farm or uh, being able to apply for a job via the internet which you can't access in so many places what should we do uh, in particular not just for inequality but for the kind of poverty that you're really interested in, you know, the poverty of non-urban places. Yeah. Well, first, let me say that on that point about the reasons that people can't get out, you know, for some folks, they might feel trapped by those reasons. Um, but, but for some people, even if they could leave, they wouldn't want to because they love where they live. And the greater problem is not how to get them to a place uh, with the resources, but rather to renew the resources in the place that they've been tending for a long time. There are a lot of reasons that that's in the best interest of everyone in this country, and some of those reasons are environmental. So I live in a part of the country where um, uh, mineral companies would love to uh, get a hold of every inch of land that's cr that's currently being held onto by small family farms, which have been going under for decades. But there's natural gas to be fracked, and there's this is a, a vast swath of Earth, the United States. It is, it is, a, it is just geographically a, a large piece of land, and the majority of it is isn't 
uh, urban space, it's rural space. And I like to think of the people who are kind of holding on as potential stewards. And one way that that could happen that excites me is if we thought about the Green New Deal as specifically an economic opportunity in rural America, um, there's no part of the population more uh, well poised to kind of lead that mission statement with a born wisdom about the earth that, um, you know, I don't see why job investments and the uh, long overdue attention to climate change and other environmental concerns couldn't overlap in some exciting ways. Um, so that's specific to rural, but across the board, just in a, as a, to paint a bigger picture, and I should, you know, point out, of course, uh, farmers and people who are directly connected to the earth or the land in terms of their, um, let's just say folks in agricultural industries, uh, don't account for all of rural America by any means. Um, and in increasingly, the folks who live in small towns across this country are employed by major corporations. So yeah. my first job, um, you know, as somebody like paying taxes, at, I was working long before age 16 on the farm, of course, but, uh, but my first job, like on the federal rolls was as a server at Pizza Hut on a rural highway going through the small town I grew up in. That town now has what is kind of like an infamous symbol of rural America take over Dollar General. Um, there's no Walmart there. It's not big enough, but they've certainly made inroads in those places. So corporate America definitely has long had its um, its claws into those environments. And for that reason, the, the policy shift that would help everyone urban and rural like that I would most like to see is just pay people more damn money. Yeah, exactly. Pay people more money. Yeah. <laughs> That's about as simple as it gets. And yeah. um, the consternation over how to fix poverty, whether rural or urban, um, just strikes me as laughable and, and more of a, a sign of people truly being unwilling to fix it as opposed to it being said so vexing it's not complicated um, pay yeah. people more so um what's your next project what's your next thing i have more lately been developing a podcast on the same themes uh it's called the homecomers oh and this is the first time i'm sharing that publicly actually oh, yeah. and it'll be out later this summer oh that's super fun congratulations Good for you. that's awesome it's about the wellness of rural communities and it's really amplifying the voices of people who who are doing the work and and have lived um, that rural life firsthand. And I'm also just happily taking a break from writing, believe it or not, Heartland, my book was not contrived for this political moment. I began it in the year 2002 with a tiny research oh, grant. Okay. It took me over a decade to write it because I was poor most of those years. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I'm just tired from writing y'all. And, um, <laughs> and so I'm not going to probably be doing any writing projects anytime soon, but just enjoying, uh, dabbling in other media. Well, I, I want to, th- personally thank you for for doing that writing project it was a a beautifully written book thanks so much Uh, so cool well listen we've taken a lot of your time and we are so pleased to have gotten to chat with you sarah this has been awesome okay thank you so much okay best of luck bye-bye take care bye thank you bye-bye One of the great privileges of doing this podcast is that we get to talk to the authors of the books we read. Yeah. Well, uh, this was really fun because I actually listened to the audio book recording of Sarah's book <laughs> that she narrates. So yeah. it was like getting to talk back to the book itself. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> yeah, it's such an interesting story and so 
big part of the economic story of the last 40 years is the way that rural areas have become increasingly impoverished. But Goldie, you know, one of the really important challenges that the country faces is, you know, that there are some underlying dynamics to how an increasingly technological economy work that make this rural urban divide, spatial inequality, a very tough challenge. Right. Because it's not just a policy challenge. There are different policies we can do. Part of what's happening today is the result of decisions we made in D.C. and in state capitals around the country. And as we said earlier, some of those decisions were stupid and we shouldn't have made them and we could make better ones in the future. So we can address issues like market concentration through law, but part of it is just the changing nature of the economy. And I think the important takeaway here is that you can't fix a systemic problem with place-based solutions like worker retraining. You can't you can't ask a uh, a city or a rural county to pull itself up by its own bootstraps by offering uh, retraining programs when it doesn't address the larger national problem that is sucking jobs and wealth into a handful of big cities. Right. Yeah. There's no getting around requiring big profitable companies to pay people enough to get by. I think one of the one of the more painful things that Sarah talked about was how she spent uh, much of her youth working on a farm growing food and she goes to college and she's so poor at times she couldn't afford to eat. <laughs> This is not about feeling sorry for uh, people in poverty in rural America. We actually want people to live dignified lives. Yeah. And again, there's no reason why we can't do that. Again, the giant aggregate businesses that dominate the economic landscape could, could absolutely afford to pay people decent wages. And we could go back to a regime of preventing corporate concentration rather than encouraging it. We right. could have family farms. There's no reason that we couldn't have those again. And and we could go back to a public college and university system where 80% of tuition was subsidized by the state yeah. instead of it being 80% tuition so that those kids in rural America that want to get a, an education don't have to be scared away by the cost of it. Yeah. Right. All of these are policy choices. So I do think that we can save rural America. And I think for the country's sake, we need to find ways to do it. And if that requires making policy decisions that some people in cities uh, think are inefficient or ineffective or uh, or unfair, unfair, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to have to do that because for the country to function well, Uh, politically, culturally, and economically, we're all going to have to find a way to be in this together. Thanks to everyone for leaving your questions on our voicemail. Next week on Pitchfork Economics, comedian Trey Crowder will be joining Nick to answer all your questions. So this is your last chance. Leave us a question at 731-388-9334. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests and thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk, Jessen Farrell, Jasmine Weaver, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fabley. See you next week.